listening to Chugga Talk with Ryan Murphy, a podcast by Pull Across Made Simple. related business chuck a talk has a truly global audience to learn more about advertising here email me at ryan at polocrossmadesimple.com space is limited personal fitness is so important in the sport of polo cross although we can't all look like stefan harris we could all be working towards our own fitness goals i've learned through personal experience that having a community of friends that share their fitness and nutrition ideas and activities truly can motivate others to follow suit a rising tide raises all the ships in the harbor. Please join the American Polo Cross Association's fitness community today on Facebook groups. It's called American Polo Cross Fitness Group. It's hosted by the APA's Player Development Program and open to members worldwide. If you see Steph Harris, please encourage him to join for abs motivation. Again, it's a Facebook group called American Polo Cross Fitness Group. Get pumped! On this episode of Chuck a Talk, you'll meet Daniel Johnson, former American Polo Cross Association Chief Umpire, on part three of his rules discussion, where he talks about the rules of play. Here on Chuck a Talk, the goal is to shrink the polo cross world by connecting people together, and most importantly, to provide education by interviewing players from all over the world. So listen closely and enjoy. Hello, hello. Welcome to part three of the riveting Daniel Reads the Rulebook series. Uh, I'm Daniel Johnson, and we've already covered some of the beginning of the book and the back of the book. Now we're going to get into Section 3, Rules of Play. All right, rule number one, how to win. The team that scores the most goals wins the game. That seems pretty self-explanatory, not too controversial. Number two, equipment. A. All equipment and gear must be in sound and good working order. I'm going to read a couple of these and we'll go back to it. B. Players and horses will wear and maintain appropriate safety equipment for the entirety of the game as defined in the required equipment section, which is back in previous section of the rulebook. In the instance of a lost bell boot, the issue may be corrected during a time off called by the umpire after the next dead ball and play resumes as usual when complete. So this first part says all equipment and gear must be in sound and good working order. So as an umpire, if you see something that, whether it's required or not, that is a piece of the equipment a player brought to the field and you feel like it's not in sound, good working order, then you are able to have them fix it and penalize them for it. That second part where it says all horses and players must wear and maintain all the appropriate safety equipment refers back to the equipment section in the standards of play part. It's part seven in my book on page 18. And it talks about all the gear that you have to have, including a saddle without a horn, leg wraps, bell boots, breastplate, uh, riding boots, things like that. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that we bring on the field or we put on our horses that doesn't fall under that required equipment section. Uh, those will not be penalized. Say a spur falls off, a horse's rosette comes off its tail, you drop your whip. Those things are not required, so play can go on without a penalty. If there is 
part of your equipment, even if it's not required, that breaks, then that equipment is not in sound, good working order, and you would be penalized. An example would be if a girth breaks or a, uh, a, a bridle comes off. That is going to have to have a time off, and because your equipment is the reason that time was called off, there should be a penalty called against you for your equipment not being in good sound working order. All right, there is a little side note to that second part of the safety equipment, and it is the bell boot one. And we added that to be in line with the international rules that added it. And the idea of it is bell boots come off occasionally during the game. Even if you showed up to the game with good equipment, brand new bell boots, uh, there's a chance that just horses' feet brushing up against each other knocks a bell boot off. And what we ask the umpires to do is wait for a break in the game, allow that bell boot to be replaced, and start the game back up without a penalty being called. The confusion came whenever we started this rule as how many bell boots we let someone get away with coming off. And the way that I tell people is you're not penalized for a bell boot coming off, but you are penalized if your equipment is not in good sound working order. So a kind of guideline that you can have is if someone's losing a bell boot repeatedly, then that might give you a clue that maybe it's not a coincidence and maybe it's the quality of the equipment that was brought on the field. And if you think the reason that bell boot came off is because the quality of the bell boot, then that should be penalized, not because of anything in this bell boot rule, but because the equipment they brought is not in good sound working order. Okay, rule number three, the lineup and everything that follows, we covered in the last section. So I'll skip past that and we'll skip to number four, the goal scoring area. A, only the number one and opposing number three players may play in the goal scoring area. That phrasing play there is intentional and should be used whenever you're deciding if someone should have a penalty called against them or not. So it doesn't say you're not allowed to be in that area. It says you're not allowed to play in that area. So a player that is doing something in midfield and then passes through that area to exit and doesn't interfere with play whatsoever will not be penalized. The second part, B, a player who is not allowed to play in the scoring area may override the 30-yard line provided that the player clears the area immediately so as not to interfere in any way with the play in the area. That should clarify that first rule. Next, C, any player who should not be in the goal-scoring area and whose team gains advantage because of their presence there will be penalized. So an example of this might be a midfield player is being pushed around and is just trying to escape one of the other players, or say a 10-yard throw is being a missed goal, 10-yard throw is being brought back into midfield. If there's an advantage for a player to hide in that area and then come out and gain advantage one way or another, uh, even though you might have said while they were in there they weren't playing, but they gained advantage for being in that area they're not supposed to be in. So that would be penalized. D, a player not permitted in the goal scoring area may not swing at the racket or interfere with a player in the goal scoring area. So this is saying that if even if you're in midfield, you cannot interfere in any way with the players in the area. So if you're standing on one side of the line, 
and you see the ball carrier come close enough to you that you can swing at their racket, you cannot swing at their, their racket until they've come back into midfield. Last one, E. If a player is pushed into the goal-scoring area, the player pushing them must allow them back into the midfield area immediately. And this is saying if you're number two and you're holding a opposition player across that line that they don't belong in, you have to let them back in. All right, we're moving on. Number five, riding through the goalpost. This is another new one that came to be in line with international rules. This is supposed to protect the goaltenders is the reason for this rule. And it says, A, players may not ride through the goalpost during game play. So penalty four, which is a free goal, is the lowest penalty that you can award. That's the least strict penalty that you can award. And it also has a keyword here. It says during game play. So before the game, when people are walking through the goalpost in a time-off situation, uh, the Goaltender's not going to be threatened by a racing horse coming through, and there's no reason to have any kind of penalty outside of the actual gameplay itself. So it's only during gameplay that this rule applies. Def the next part, definition of, quote, riding through the goalposts is all four feet of a horse pass through the goalposts. So if you step over that line, that doesn't count. You have to completely pass through with the entirety of your horse for it to count as a penalty. If you don't pass through all the way, then the goaltender is not threatened and there's no reason to penalize them. The last part, a player will be penalized if he or she intentionally rides another player through the goalposts. And I had to put this rule in after the initial rule was put in place. The first time I did an umpire clinic immediately after these new rules were put in place, they said, man, when we're racing down the line and a player shoots a goal as a three, I can just give them a little nudge and make them don't, not have an option but to go through the goalposts. And I can get a free goal. That sounds like maybe a good strategy that some people might do. Uh, that is a really bad thing to do. Causing a dangerous situation because you know that it might benefit you in the game is a very bad, extremely terrible thing to do. And the penalty for that, that we had to add afterwards, like I said, is penalty five. So if you see someone that you think is intentionally trying to make that player ride through the goalpost, then you are creating that dangerous situation on purpose. The minimum penalty is to kick them off the field for a period of time. Okay, number six, scoring goals. A, goals can be scored only by the number one. B, the ball must be thrown and then passed between the goal posts at any height. C. The number one must be in their goal scoring area between the 30-yard line and the D. B. A goal is considered good if the ball is thrown by the number one and hits in passing the opposing number three or their horse and passes through the goal posts even if the opposing number three is within the D. So this is just saying if there's a deflection after the ball is released, bounces off a player, a uh, racket, it hits a post, a horse, so long as it passes through the goalpost, it will still be a goal. Uh, this one, I'm not sure if we added the in-passing part or if we just tried to highlight it whenever we coached people, but the in-passing part is intentional and can clarify several situations. One situation might be you throw the ball 
it hits the goal post, come back, comes back into play, and then your horse kicks it out or it gets deflected back through the goal posts after that. Uh, how many times does the ball get to be deflected and when does that attempt at goal stop and it just become an out-of-bounds situation? And this in passing is critical so that if the ball is on its way to the goal and it's deflected, as it's passing the player, the post, whatever, then it will still be counted a good goal or a missed goal. If it hits something and then it's coming back into play and then it gets returned back through the goal, then it didn't hit something in passing and that would be just an out-of-bounds situation. The attempt at goal had already stopped. As you throw the ball, the ball has to bounce off whatever it's going to bounce off pass them up and go through the goalposts. If it's coming back into play or it comes to a stop, then it didn't hit that thing in passing to the goalposts. I hope that's clear. Uh, It doesn't sound clear when I say it, but we'll see. Last part, a goal is considered good if the number three catches, deflects, or causes by deflection off their horse the ball to miss the goal while their horse's hooves are on or outside the back line between the goalposts. So as a number three, if you're going to try and deflect or get in the way of a goal that's being scored, you need to be on the field. If you were to deflect the ball or interfere with the ball while your horse's feet were out of bounds somewhere anytime during the game, you would be called for out of bounds. If you happen to be doing that deflection while someone's shooting a goal and you're standing within the goal out of bounds, at least with some part of your horse's feet, then that goal will be called good even if the deflection causes the ball to go outside the goalpost. Number seven, missed goal. Any of the following shall be deemed a missed goal. A legitimate throw at the goal results in the ball going out of bounds without passing between the goalposts. This is you throw an attempt at goal, it either hits a post or a player and goes out of bounds, then that is a missed goal. If you attempt a shot at goal and it doesn't go far enough or it gets deflected back into play, you just carry on to play. Second one, a goal thrown while inside the D. There's a part of that. A player will be deemed to be inside of the D if one or more of the horse's hooves are on the ground on or inside the D. So we decide where a player is on the field by where the horse's hooves are, and a goal will be deemed a missed goal If when the ball is released, one or more of those horses' hooves are within the semicircle D around the goal. Next one, a missed goal will be if the number one throws both the racket and the ball between the goalposts. So even if it goes to the goalpost, if the ball and the racket are both thrown, that is a missed goal. You don't see that very often. Last one, when attempting a shot at goal, if the ball is deflected by the number three player or his horse, then goes out of bounds without passing through the goalpost. So if that player, while on the field, taps the ball, hits their horse, deflects off of whatever, and goes out of bounds, then that is a good job for the number three. They did a good job deflecting it, and they'll get the ball on a missed goal. The next section is number eight, the game restart, how we start the game after a missed goal. We covered that in the previous segment, so we'll move on to number nine, crossing the 30-yard line. A, 
A player may not cross the 30-yard line while in possession of the ball. Possession of the ball, as we said before, is in the net of a racket. So the ball must be released from your net before you enter or cross over that 30-yard line. And, of course, we know the horse's feet are how we know where a player is on the field. So the ball has to be released by the time that your horse's hoof touches down on or past that 30-yard line. Uh, As an umpire, this is one of the more important parts that are hard to see. And because we umpire to the right, then when play goes to the right, I need to be in front of that play. And the reason is, the reason we go to the right is because of this rule. Uh, I can see most players are right-handed, and I can see the player's racket and horse's feet more clearly on the right side. So that's why we pick that side for, uh, for that umpire. And that umpire needs to be leading the play so that as the ball crosses the 30-yard line, they have a clear view of when the ball is released and where the horse's feet are at the time it is released. Next one. A player carrying the ball up to the 30-yard line may bounce, lob, or throw the ball such that it hits the ground in the area into which they are traveling and may then recover it so the player does not have possession while their horse is crossing the line. Uh, This was changed to be more like international whenever we did the big change years ago. The main part of this that was changed was where the ball hits the ground. Previously in the APA, it didn't matter where the ball hit the ground so long as where you were when you had the ball wasn't on the line, that you released it and grabbed the ball in the appropriate time. But the reason for this addition uh, came from international rules, like I said, and it was to slow the game down. A player that is going very, very, very fast, in order to be able to retrieve the ball in the area and still have time to shoot it before they overrun the 30-yard line, in the past, you could bounce it well before you get to the line so that with your very, very fast speed, you can get it just as you pass the line and you can shoot a goal. Now with this rule, a player that goes very, very fast will have to still place the ball down in the area to which they're traveling uh, into the end zone. And by the time the ball bounces back up, they're very limited in the amount of time they have before they get to the D. So it makes it a little bit more difficult for the very, very fast number ones to get past the 30-yard line and still have that window of time to shoot a goal. Another interesting part of this rule that I think is important is it says that the ball must hit the ground. And if the player's carrying the ball, this doesn't talk about passes, if a player's carrying the ball, they can release the ball and retrieve it again once they get across the line, but they can't just toss it in the air and catch it without it touching the ground. So here it says, however it comes in there, whether you bounce it or you lob it, roll it, whatever, it must touch the ground before you retrieve it. Next one, the ball will be deemed to have been carried over the 30-yard line when one or more of the player's horse's hooves are on the ground on or over the 30-yard line while they are in possession of the ball. This just clarifies what we've already been saying in another rule or two back. Next is another clarification of what happens in weird things in the game, and it says a ball resting on the 30-yard line is deemed to be in midfield and may be picked up by players in midfield only. So if the ball has stopped on the line, not no players in the area are allowed to touch it. That ball is deemed to be in midfield, and only midfield players are allowed to pick up the ball. 
This next rule should probably just be taken out because I think it's redundant. It says, if a foul is committed by a player carrying the ball over the 30-yard line, the penalty will be marked at the spot at which the ball crossed the line. Uh, we already say that you're not allowed to do these things, and it says penalty one at the end of the rule. Penalty one is a spot foul where the foul happened, and the foul will happen right when that player crosses the line at that spot. So that rule, I think, is probably okay to be taken out. Moving on to rule number 10, out of bounds. After looking over these first three or four rules in this section, uh, they really just repeat themselves, it seems like. It says, if the ball or hoof of the horse of the ball carrier is on the sideline or in lines, the ball is deemed to be out of bounds. The next one, the player will be judged in or out of bounds by the position of the horse's hoofs, not the position of the ball relative to the boundary line. So you can hold the ball over the line so long as your horse stays in, inside the field. Next, a player will be penalized if the ball is in a player's possession and is carried out of bounds. Again, seems repetitive. D, excluding attempted shots on goal or lineups, the last person to touch the ball before it goes out of bounds will be penalized. So even if that person didn't have possession of the ball, say in midfield, but they were the last one to touch it with their racket uh, before it went out of bounds, then that person will be penalized. It does not say a horse in this, just so you know. And we have to clarify that in a goal situation, it's different. And now that we have the throw-in, the lineup rule, where if it comes immediately out of bounds, even if it's off someone's racket, um, we had to add those in there so that they didn't conflict with the other two rules I just referred to. Next, a ball that comes off a horse and is deflected out of bounds, shall be thrown in to a lineup from the spot at which the ball went out. So if the ball goes out on a horse, it's a neutral ball, you throw it back in. This last rule in this section kind of puts a kink in that, what we just talked about, and says, a player may not run their horse over the ball to intentionally cause it to go out of bounds. So this situation might be that uh, a player was the last person to touch it, Maybe there's a, a pass to them that wasn't good enough, and they're racing to the ball. The line is coming right up. They know if they catch the ball or try to pick the ball up, they're going to have the ball and immediately ride out of bounds. They know if they don't catch the ball, it's going to end up bouncing out of bounds. Either way, they're not going to get the ball. And so a strategy might be to try and intentionally run your horse over the ball to maybe get it to go out of bounds. So if you think a player is doing that intentionally, you would penalize them and get, give the other team the ball. Rule 11. This is a short one. Riding off the field. Any player deliberately riding outside the boundary of the field or any player being ridden off and forced outside the boundary of the field must safely re-enter the field of play less than 10 yards from the point of exit and within the same field area. The opposition must let the player safely back on the field. So we'll, we'll break this down a little bit. Any player deliberately riding, so say they go out of bounds to uh, pick up a racket from someone or however, whatever they want to do off the field, they can be there as long as they want. But whenever they enter the field back in, they need to enter within 10 yards of where they exited and the same area. So they can't change to the midfield if they went out of bounds in the end zone. The other part of that says... Uh, if they're pushed out of bounds, 
So if you're racing down the field and you push someone out of bounds, that player, you need to let them back on the field, but that player needs to come back in within the same area and may even have to turn around if they're running fast and they're carrying a lot of momentum off the field, may have to turn around and come back in to the same 10 yard, within 10 yards of where they went out. So it's a 20 yard window. That other part where it says the same area, you have to, if you are, uh, say there's a number three that really needs to get in the area or a number one that's waiting to get a pass and just cannot get into the area, they can't leave the field, even if it's within 10 yards, they can't go around that cone and enter back into the safety of the area where that player can't bother them anymore. Uh, they have to, even if it's within 10 yards, they have to leave the field and enter within the same area. This next section, section 12, is my nemesis and my least favorite part of the whole rule book. And the reason I don't like it is because I think it's flawed and I don't know the answer to how to fix it. But it's crossing and right-of-way. The very first one that we put in here was to try and kind of drift away from the term line of the ball and make it more clear and easier for everybody to understand in the same way. And it says, the term, quote, line of the ball is defined as the imaginary line that describes the players that have right of way over other players. You'll notice that the ball has nothing to do with line of the ball. It the direction of travel of the ball or who is carrying the ball does not change who has the right-of-way whenever horses are running down the field. That's probably the most confusing part of the term line of the ball because it brings the ball into the conversation and the ball could be doing many different things and makes it very difficult to try and explain and everybody be on the same page with crossing. So we just take the ball all the way out of the word and it describes the players that have the right-of-way. All right. B, no player may cross in front or behind another player except at such distance as does not involve the possibility of collision or danger to either player or horse. There have been a lot of times where different people would try and quantify a distance. Uh, one idea is a, a horse can stretch out X number of feet, and with their front legs, and a horse can stretch out so far with their back legs. If we add those up, then anyone traveling in front of or behind a horse that is closer than that distance, there's a possibility that your horse and their horse could touch each other and collide. I don't like this because it means every lineup and working in the area and these other situations, even though the horses are moving, they're moving at a slower speed and there isn't a possibility of collision. It also makes it to where at high speeds, really high speeds, players can come within just a few feet, maybe six feet or something of another player, which you can imagine a perpendicular line passing in front of the player with the right-of-way with only six or 10 feet or whatever we decide the distance is of a distance between them. That is a very dangerous situation and I don't think Thinking of it with a specific distance will account for the really slow versus the really fast changes in the possibility of collision. Next says, any player leaving the field has no automatic right-of-way when returning to the field. So if you exit the field and there are horses on the field, when you come back into the field, 
you do not have right away over anyone on the field, and you need to interplay uh, in a way that doesn't cause any danger or uh, chance of collision. Next one, any player in possession of, quote, line of the ball shall have right of way over others. All right, so here it says the word possession, and I think that's probably uh, unfortunate. Uh, when you say possession of the line of the ball, people hear possession of the ball. So I would rather change the word possession to have, and it would say any player that has the line of the ball shall have right of way over other players. So even if you have the ball in your racket, you have possession of the ball, you might not have right of way. Doesn't mean you can just run straight into people and that crossing will be their fault, or you can run in front of people and allow yourself to get run over. Moving on to E in the crossing section, if a player is not in possession of the ball, the player closest to the ball who is riding in the direction the ball is traveling will be considered to be in possession of the line of the ball and shall have right-of-way. I really don't like this. Uh, this whole section of crossing and right-of-way, whenever we did all these big changes, this is one of the sections that got the least amount of corrections, probably aside from the uh, line of the ball versus right-of-way terminology. A lot of these just carried right over from the previous rulebook because we knew they were broken, but we couldn't really think of a way to fix them the right way, so they didn't get changed. I still think it needs a lot of attention. This one right here, I disagree with. The, the good thing about it is it kind of describes the flow of play. If there are multiple horses doing all their little jostling around and running around in, the, in midfield, say, uh, it kind of shows which of those groups has right-of-way over the other groups, and the closer people towards the ball that are going in the direction of travel of the ball might have right-of-way over maybe a second group that is farther away from the ball and not necessarily going uh, in the direction of the ball. I think this has a lot of problems because it brings the ball in into the conversation. There are a lot of times where the ball gets deflected very fast and maybe gets hit out of someone's racket, and it might go near one player, but all five of the other horses are all running in a in a different direction. And so it makes this one player in that situation have right-of-way over all of this big mob of horses where it's probably better if that player gets out of the way and lets the mob of horses come through. Again, there's just so many different scenarios when it comes to crossing that it's hard to make a written down rule that encapsulates all of the different things that can happen in the game. But the purpose of this rule is to try and dictate the flow of the game. And if there are multiple groups of horses going places, which one should have right of way over the others? F says, a player possessing the line of the ball has right of way over any other player riding to meet the ball if the other player approaches at an angle that intersects the ball's line of travel and produces an unsafe crossing for the speed of travel. Uh, again, I don't like these rules, but what this is saying here is if there are players running down the field, they are, we've decided that they have the line of the ball, they carry the right-of-way, that 
the ball that's out in front of those players, someone else can get, but if they come in at an intersecting angle to those other horses that causes a danger that that other player coming in has now crossed and should be penalized, I don't think that rule is actually necessary. I think that that situation right there is already described by establishing that these players have the line of travel or the right-of-way and other players can't cross in the distance which could cause a collision. So where the ball is really doesn't matter. It maybe helps for clarification. Other than that, I think this rule is redundant. Letter G says, if no player holds clear line of the ball and the ball is moving, the player who assumes line of the ball first or holds the least angle to the line shall have right-of-way. I think the reason this rule is in here, which I don't like this rule again, but I think the reason this rule is in here is if there's no right-of-way claimed by any of the players on the field, say uh, players are stationary or players are far apart from each other, then who gets to have it whenever play starts happening and we need to start watching people and who has right-of-way? So the way I'm reading this says either the person that starts traveling first starts creating a you know that forward momentum that someone shouldn't cross in front of uh, or the player that is traveling in the the closest angle to the direction of travel of the ball uh, then that player gets to have right of way where I think this might be helpful maybe is if Say the ball is in the end zone, it gets hit out of the number one's racket and travels back into midfield. Well, all the players in midfield are likely to not have established lines of travel and, and uh, right-of-ways in amongst them because they're probably stationary or uh, not a lot of movement. So when that ball gets entered into that area where there isn't anyone with the line of the ball, with that right-of-way that's been established, the player that is uh, that either establishes their line first, so the group of players that starts going out together, or a single one, whatever, um, in a direction and starts that travel, will have the line of the ball. Or the player that is coming to the ball with the least angle of the ball's line of travel. I see lots of flaws there. I don't know that I can explain a better way to say it, but... Uh, We'll move on to H, and it says, Players may neither stop in front of nor turn back into players with the line of the ball. We had a specific clarification that I try and tell people. A lot of times they will blow the whistle. Someone, uh, say, misses a pickup and stops and turns around and goes back towards that ball, but there are still other players that were going the direction of the ball uh, when they missed the pickup. Now they are going to be too close and there's a possibility of collision and that player turning back into the line of travel of those other horses or stopping in front of those other horses and being run over is the one that's at fault. The problem with it was is someone, an umpire might blow the whistle and say, tweet, stopping on the ball. We don't want to say the word stopping on the ball because when you say that you're teaching all the players in the field that whenever they umpire that stopping on the ball is illegal there are times where the ball is on the ground say after a lineup and everybody's fighting for it 
and someone's just standing there, or all of them might be standing there, and you'll hear an umpire blow the whistle, tweet, stopping on the ball, all of you, let's throw it in again, or stopping on the ball, player number two. This only happens if there is a right-of-way established, a line of, of the ball established already, and if you're standing there by yourself and you're not causing this collision situation with someone that already has the line of the ball, then that's legal. So again, I want to emphasize, we don't say stopping on the ball. We say crossing. You crossed in front of people that had the line of travel by stopping yourself in front of them or turning back in towards them. The last one in this terrible section is I, if no player possesses the line of the ball and the ball is not moving, the player closest to the ball shall have right of way and first call on the ball. I don't think the first call on the ball should be in there at all. I think that's bad. Um, but what it's saying is if there is no line of the ball established, then the closest player to the ball is going to be the one that has will, will be the one that gets the right of way. It's just another way, like that previous rule, to say who gets to have the right of way if no one had it in the first place. Again, I don't like it. So let's move on to ones that maybe I like more, I hope. We're getting close to the end of the book. Thanks for hanging in there, everybody. I'm sure this is riveting. Uh, I hope nobody's listening to this while they're driving, falling asleep. But thanks for hanging in there. 13 says dangerous writing. Uh, the dangerous writing penalties in the books are a free goal type situation. And the very first one is very broad and open, allows you as an umpire to have a lot of freedom, and it takes a lot of the weird situations out of out of the game by saying, no player shall ride dangerously. So if there's any player that's doing anything that's riding in a way that you think is dangerous, right there, boom, you can say that's dangerous. Um, if a horse is out of control or a, a player is doing whatever it is that could happen in the game, if you feel like they are riding dangerously, then you're allowed to penalize them even if it's not written specifically, that's that scenario. Next, no player shall intentionally lose contact with their reins during play. Um, I've seen this happen before when uh, players holding the ball and they'll drop the reins, whip, 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 and then reach back up and grab their reins. Uh, this player might have really short reins and a short whip to where they're just hitting on the shoulder and they're really trying to encourage their horse and they can't reach back to hit them. So they let go of the reins and they go back and give them a big swat on their hind end, uh, you're not allowed to intentionally let go of your reins. An unfortunate way that you could call this rule, or situation that could happen where someone could break this rule, happens in uh, low-level games with very inexperienced players that have extended to the end of their racket. Now they're holding it at the butt end of their racket. Now they have the ball, and you see it with like kids or very, very low beginners. Now they need to choke back up to where their normal grip is, and they haven't figured out how to slide their hand up. They let go of their reins, readjust their racket, and then grab their reins again. Typically, this isn't really a dangerous situation, but it is illegal, and there's not really a way for us to say it's okay for certain people to do it, not okay for others to do it. So hopefully those are learning moments for those people, and it doesn't happen uh, often but 
it's an unfortunate side effect of this intentionally losing contact with the reins rule, and it is illegal. C says, two players may not wedge a player between them so as to cause a dangerous situation. It has two little subnotes in there. It says, this foul will be observed when rider and horse are in physical contact with riders on both sides and pushing to create a wedge. The player causing the wedge will be penalized. Uh, this is like the san- sandwiching rule. If you have two players, two horses pushing on either side of you, that's a dangerous situation for your horse, and it's discouraged and dangerous. Um, you'll see this a lot uh, with two opposition players marking up a single player, but you can also see it in kind of a strange way where if there's a player on the right carrying the ball, nobody can hit the racket, of course, because they're right-handed, and they're being pushed from the left, then another player, no matter who they are, cannot come back in and push uh, either one of those players. And where it's confusing is... If one, if say the blue team is the one with the ball and they have a red player on their left side, if another red player were to come in there and think that maybe their teammate wasn't doing a good enough job or we're getting close to the 30-yard line, I'm going to squeeze myself in there and be able to continue a constant contact with the ball carrier. Uh, you're actually wedging against your own player. So even though it was the red team in the middle of that sandwich – the last player coming in that caused the dangerous situation was a red team member. So even though the person that was at, in danger was a red player, red team would be at fault in that situation, and the blue team would get a penalty, would be awarded a penalty. D says no player may seize with hand or push with their head, forearm, or elbow another rider. So you can't grab somebody, you can't push them with your elbow, you can't use your forearm or your head to push another rider. The next one, E, says a player may push with their hip, shoulder, or arm above the elbow, provided that the elbow is kept at their side. I don't like this rule because it's not in the negative. It's not saying you can't do something. It's saying you're allowed to do something only if. And if you were to take it out, the previous one where it says you're not allowed to push them with those other parts would already apply. So the only good thing about this rule is maybe if there's some clarification that's needed. It says you can push with your shoulder and you can push with your hip player to player, but you just have to keep that elbow in. F says a player shall not allow their horse's head to contact another player. Um, this is causes a whole lot of injuries. This happens a lot when a player turns in towards another horse and that horse bumps up against the other player. And I know I remember one nationals where I got my face cut open from a horse's bit. And just recently we have a team member that broke a rib because of a horse's head banging against them. And horse's heads are pretty brutal against people's bodies. And that is just like a hit to the head, wild swing kind of situation. It's a free goal. You're not allowed to contact another player with your horse's head. Next, jostling or bumping during time off is not permitted. 
And this one says penalty one or two. And, oh, it looks like we've moved this rule over to 18E. And 18 is in the time off section. So in my older rule book, this was in the dangerous writing section, but it had a penalty one, penalty two. Like the players uh, are just, it's not going to be a free goal situation. It's just going to be a the other team gets the ball situation. Um, so it's good that it's pulled out of there because everything in dangerous writing is a free goal. And it has been placed over in the time off section so that if while time is off, players are fighting against each other and jostling, pushing for rank and all that, while time is off, uh, the penalty would be give the ball to the other team. Or if that team were already going to have the ball, then move it up. H is the writing off and pushing section. There's a whole bunch of subnotes. I might read through them all and then we'll just talk about it. Writing off is allowed providing that contact is made with the horses facing in the same direction and pushing shoulder to shoulder. No player shall use their horse to push or bump another horse in a manner dangerous to either horse or player. When horses are stationary and facing opposite directions, pushing is allowed sideways provided that horses are kept parallel and either player does not push across the other horse's loins or back under the opposing horse's head. No player shall bump with sufficient force to dislodge a horse from its line of travel. So this is how you can make contact with another opposing horse and move them around the field in a legal, safe way. We'll start at the bottom. If you come in and bump against another horse and push them or bump them off their line of travel... Man, I remember when we were talking about this last. We were trying to describe certain scenarios and pushing, yeah, of course, I'm going to push you because I want you to change your line of travel. So this one right here says the word bump. So it's that initial contact of the of those two horses. That initial bump can't be at such, uh, can't be strong enough that it pushes that horse off the line of travel. You'll see it a lot and you'll know it happens because the whole crowd goes, ugh! And, uh, and it looks terrible. So you're allowed to push someone off their line of travel. You're not allowed to bump them off their line of travel. Some of these other things we had talked about. Um, the first one where it says they have to be facing the same direction and pushing shoulder to shoulder. It's pretty obvious the contradiction here is just two paragraphs down where it says, some other times where they don't have to be shoulder to shoulder. And uh, the meaning of these, the reasoning for these is this first one really should incorporate uh, a horse with uh, a moving horse. If a horse is moving, you can come up and push that horse. But say a horse is going down the field, you can't come up and push them while facing the other way if they're moving. Later on, it says when the horse is stationary, there are these other things that can happen. But I think that first part where it says you have to be shoulder to shoulder needs to be uh, needs to have some reference to the horses that are moving. This next one where it talks about the stationary ones is talking about, say, a number one and number three in the area or any other time there's just one-on-one -on -one situation and the horses are stationary. 
So you're allowed to push a horse while not facing in the same direction. Um, you're not allowed to bump them off their line of travel, of course, but um, when you're pushing them and you guys are stationary, you have to make sure that your horse's butt stays on your side. It doesn't go underneath the neck of the other horse and that your horse's head doesn't go over the top of the other horse. So you don't necessarily have to be facing the same direction if the horse you're pushing is stationary. The only one we haven't talked about already is that one where I said that uh, no player shall use their horse to push or bump another horse in a manner that's dangerous to either horse or player. This one is kind of open-ended, and it allows the freedom for the umpire to see a dangerous situation, not necessarily know if there's a particular rule that is being broken, but they know that that scenario, that situation was dangerous, then they can just refer to this this rule by itself and say, I thought it was dangerous, so it was an illegal pushing situation or dangerous. It falls under the dangerous riding category. All right, 14, we're out of the dangerous riding situations. We're into wrongful use of whips, spurs, and racket. The penalties here are free goal and above. The first one says, no player is allowed to hit a horse intentionally with his or her racket. So, of course, the racket is going to come in contact with the horse occasionally here and there just because you're riding with a racket in your hand and um, there is the occasion that racket will graze up against your horse or whatever. But where this is uh, most commonly penalized is whenever you're either hitting your horse or intentionally hitting another horse with your racket, and that's an immediate free goal. Don't hit your horse with a racket. It looks bad for the sport in general as a spectator. It's bad training, I think, for your horse, and it is illegal. Next one says, No player may use whip, spurs, or racket to intimidate or injure a horse or player. So you cannot use your racket, even if you don't hit that horse or hit their racket, say that, you're swinging it wildly to try and intimidate a horse or you're using um, your whip in a way that intimidates a horse. Uh, you're not allowed to intimidate them with those pieces of equipment we're talking about. Next is C. The umpire may, after ordering a player to remove spurs or whip for injury to their horse, present, prevent them from using any spurs or whip for the remainder of the game or tournament. Uh, so if you see that a horse's hind end has big welt marks from a player overusing their whip, uh, you see cuts or injuries that were created by spurs, and you've deemed that that is dangerous, and you've asked them to remove that piece of equipment, then you can actually ask them to be removed for the remainder of the game or that whole tournament. Uh, you're cutting your horse with your spurs. The horse is still okay to play, but we aren't going to let you play with spurs right now. Um, same with the whip. In this section, and I don't have it in front of me, but I can ad-lib it, uh, we've added just this year, I wasn't a part of it, but um, another rule that says excessive whipping. And... It says, no player, I'm just saying this off the top of my head, so don't quote me, no player may whip their horse more than three consecutive times. That will be deemed excessive use. Um, we had this conversation when we were talking about rules many times in years past, 
the and the reason that it's come up is there are other countries that have this no more than three whips rule. I actually don't really like it. Um, we've had the conversation many times, and should we have an excessive whipping rule added to the book? And the reason it keeps coming up is uh, international and and other countries have added a no more than three whips, consecutive whips uh, rule in there. But I think the way that we fixed it in the past was this one where it says no player may use the whip to intimidate or injure another horse or player. We changed the another to the word a, which includes their own horse. And if you're whipping in a way that injures your horse or that can injure your horse, then that's too much and it would already be breaking that rule. I'm not against us saying an, uh, an excessive whipping rule. But I don't think the right way to do it is this three whip rule. I think there are lots of situations where there's a there's an okay. It's okay that you're whipping five times or however many times. Uh, say in a lineup, and you're just giving a little tap 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 very lightly on a shoulder or a hind end to just try and get a horse's hind end or or their front end to to move over half a step to either get in the lineup or gain a better position in the lineup. And of course, that's not going to injure a horse. It's not excessive. Uh, but in this situation, it would be illegal in, with the new rule. There's other times where I think because it says three whips, it could even be a problem because I think you can whip your horse excessively with one whip or two whips. If you are a big, strong man or angry woman and you are abusing your horse, I can whip the snot out of a horse with just one swat. And that SWAT would leave a welt, and it should be excessive. But because the rule says three, I get two or three free ones before anybody calls me out on it. So I do think that there's a reason to change that. Uh, I did notice it coming in in a, in a positive way. Since this rule was uh, in place, I've been the tournament umpire for a couple tournaments. And there's one situation in particular that... A player who's a very well-liked player, and he's a good horseman and all that, but he is kind of known for making sure his whip is noticed by his horse and has come off the field in the past with welts on their horse in years past, whenever. And now that there's this three-whip rule, it makes people maybe a little bit more conscious and gives them a, nope, that was three, instead of saying, I just think you're being mean to your horse. That was too hard. So it kind of gives them a grounds to say this is something that you broke the rule on. So I think there's a better way to phrase it, but there are some positives that have come out with, uh, the, with the new rule. Okay, section number 15, carrying the ball. Any player carrying the ball must carry it on their racket side and not cross the center line of their horse. The center line of the horse, I'm not even sure if we have it in the definition section, but center line of the horse is an imaginary line that goes from the horse's nose between their ears to their withers and to their tail. And if you're carrying the ball, the ball cannot cross that center line of your horse on top of or underneath of your horse. It is permissible to pick up or catch the ball on the non-racket side, provided that the racket and the ball are brought back to the racket side immediately. Uh, if you pick up the ball on an offside pickup, you can you can do that as long as you immediately bring it back. 
The uh, a catch can be made anywhere as long as it's immediately brought back to your racket side. A player's racket with the ball in it may pass over the center line of a horse without constituting a foul or penalty provided that the player is in the act of throwing the ball. This is a new rule. Again, most of these new rules, a lot of these new rules had to do with uh, being in line with international rules. International rules have a uh, center line, crossing over the center line when you throw the ball uh, part in there. And it was a big change to how the game was played in the United States, and uh, it took a while for play to kind of adapt to that. But the key part of this is provided that the player is in the act of throwing the ball. And it, and it only talks about crossing over one time. You know, you, can, you can't do five twirls over your head and then throw the ball. That motion of you crossing over your center line needs to be followed by a release of the ball. You can cross over the center line so long as you are um, releasing the ball, so long as you're in the act of throwing the ball. This uh, has, uh, because the game has adapted, we didn't initially have any problems with this rule. Uh, just recently, we started seeing players that have reached over their center line to bounce the ball. And they are releasing the ball. They are throwing the ball, I guess. Um, and it bounces on their off-racket side. They pick it up on their off-racket side. And that whole bounce is now protected by the player that was on their racket side and might have been able to interfere with them. I, I don't think this should be legal. And if I were umpiring and I was trying to find a way to say that it was legal or not, I would just refer to the word throw. It says in the act of throwing the ball. And just me personally, I would say you were bouncing the ball and not throwing the ball. Someone else might say I'm throwing the ball on the ground. But I, that's the way I would call it. I would say you are not in the act of a throw. You are in the act of a bounce. And I would not let them do that. But an act of throw at a shot at goal or act of, the act of throwing to a teammate or just to clear the field, throw it far away from you, whatever the case is, throw it as you're about to run out of bounds. All of those things, I think you're throwing the ball in as you're going over the 30-yard line to bounce and retrieve it. I don't think that's a throw. Uh, again, I don't think that's very clear. And because it's something that has happened recently, we haven't really had to address it. And uh, I think it probably will be addressed at some point to make sure that it's clear to everyone else. Next, a player may not switch carrying sides during the middle of a game. So, how, whichever, if you're a right-handed player or a left-handed player, how you start the game is the side that you have to carry your racket on for the entirety of the game. A uh, good thing about this is at the beginning of the game, you have to announce if you're a left-handed player to the other team, and then no teammate or no player on the field mid-game has any kind of surprises on which side that player is going to be carrying the racket. So however you start is how you have to continue. Two-handed throws are not allowed. So you're not allowed to throw the ball using both hands. Next, a player in possession of the ball may not throw or pass their racket with the ball in it to another player. So I can't 
throw my racket up in the air and have my other player catch it with the ball in it. You can do it if you don't have the ball. You can pass your racket off to somebody, say they drop their racket. But if you have the ball, you cannot pass both of them to a player. Next, no player shall deliberately throw their racket either at their opponent's racket or at the ball. So you might see this with the number three, that there's a free shot at goal. Uh, They're standing up in their stirrups. The number one umpire says play. The number one throws it nice and high through the goalposts. And the number three is not allowed to throw the racket to that ball to try and deflect it. And they can't throw the racket at someone else. I have a fun story with this. This is the shining moment of my polo cross career. I was playing with Braxton and those guys kind of showed up last minute and I was playing against my home team Lone Star. I was a three against Robbie Shuttles and we were getting beat. It was last minute or so of the game and Robbie had been curving around the D. He had beaten me. He's a horse length in front of me or a significant way in front of me to where I can't reach him and he winds up for an underhand shot at goal to kind of throw it sideways towards the goal like he's probably done multiple times on me that game. And because I knew that there wasn't much time left and we were down by a bunch of goals, uh, I ended up throwing my racket at his racket while he was in the back part of his throw. As As the racket was behind him, close to his horse's butt, I did a motion like I was doing a big underhand swing at his racket. Of course, I was way out of reach of his racket. And I released my racket. It hit Robbie's racket. Both Robbie's racket and the ball fall to the ground, and they go out of bounds. Uh, They go out of bounds outside of the goal, too, by the way. So both of the umpires were not positioned well for this play. The game was really fast back and forth, so they probably thought Robbie was just going to quickly score and go in because he's playing against me. And... uh, Neither one of them really saw what happened. So they called time off and they discussed amongst themselves. Robbie and I had both been told not to argue with the umpires, not to say anything. And if we did, we were going to be in a lot of trouble. So both of us just sat there and and watched what happened. Uh, The one umpire said, I think it was an out of position swing. He was too far back to swing. The other player said, no, I think he just hit him and he hit him hard enough that both of them dropped their rackets. So what they ended up doing is not calling anything because they can't really call something if they didn't see it. And they deemed the goal a missed goal. They said it was an attempt at goal and the ball rolled out of bounds outside the posts. And so they actually gave me the ball back at the 30-yard line. It was just the proudest moment ever in my polo cross career. Of course, my 10-yard throw was short-lived. I immediately got the ball taken back off of me by Robbie. And he went back in and scored another goal and still had time to probably score another one after that before the game was over. But that one little moment of me getting the ball after throwing my racket was just great. All right, just a little fun story to uh, ease the monotony of this me reading the rule book thing. Okay, the next one in the carrying the ball section is a player may not catch or hit the ball with anything but their racket. So a player that drops their racket on the ground uh, can't deflect the ball with their hand or can't grasp the ball uh, or anything with, they can't do any of that stuff except with their racket. I says a player shall not carry the ball other than in their racket. So that it describes the situation where the ball either becomes entrapped, say in the saddle or behind you or in your sleeve or whatever. 
you can't pin the ball up against your leg and carry the ball down the field that way. You, you can only carry the ball. If you're carrying the ball, it has to be in your racket. Jay says a player may not hold the ball in his racket by use of his body or that of their horse. So if you have the ball, knowing that the other team can't hit your horse and can't hit your body, you can't pin that ball up against, say, your horse's shoulder and run down the field. Uh, that would be illegal and it'd make it to where the number three doesn't have a legal way to try and get the ball from you or the opposition doesn't have a legal way to get the ball from you. So you're not allowed to do that. In the event that the ball lodges against a player, horse, or equipment, it must be dropped immediately. So in that off chance that the ball gets lodged, say, in the front of your saddle, between you and the saddle, or anywhere else on your person or your anywhere, uh, it must immediately be dropped. You cannot carry the ball while it's pinned, while it's lodged on you or the horse or your equipment. Almost done, like the last page. Here we go. Swinging at an opponent's racket. A player may swing their racket at an opponent's racket, but only in an upward direction to dislodge the ball or to prevent the opponent from gaining possession of the ball. I think this rule could be worded in the negative. It, does, it, it says you are allowed to swing only if, and it would read better if it said you're not allowed to swing in these certain situations. But... Just reading through it, um, you are allowed to do it, but only if it's in an upward direction. So a flat or a downward swing is not allowed. And that player has to either have possession of the ball or they have to be attempting to gain possession of the ball. So you can't ride down the field next to a player that's not paying attention and has a very light grip on the racket and just quickly try and hit it maybe out of their hands or... When you're in a lineup before the ball has been thrown in, you can't just start swinging at someone's racket. If you swing at someone's racket, that person must either have the ball or be attempting to gain possession of the ball when you swing at their racket. No player shall be allowed to swing at an opponent's racket while coming from behind until the player's body is level with the opponent's horse's hip and no further forward than the horse's shoulder for a backward swing. But at all stages, players must be within reach of an opponent's racket before attacking the racket. So the this is an out-of-position swing rule. And if I'm going to swing at your racket, not only do you have to have the ball, it has to be in upward direction, but my position, one, has to be in reach of your racket. I can't swing at your racket if I can't reach it. Uh, that there's no, It's not necessary, and, and it would be illegal. You also have to gain enough ground that your horse's shoulder is at least up to the other horse's butt if coming from behind in order to swing at someone's racket. I like that this gives a little bit more clarity for the umpires to when someone swings, they don't have to decide was was that within reach or not. They can just look at where the horses were at the time of the swing and if they see air between the horse in the back and the horse in the front, then that's not close enough to make that swing and it would be it would be penalized. The defending player's full body and horse must be on the ball carrier's racket side before swinging. You'll see this whenever uh, a horse is crossways to another horse. One, the, the ball carrier horse is facing one direction or stationary facing some direction. 
the other player is just slightly in front of or behind that ball carrier's horse, perpendicular to them or at an angle to them, their whole horse and their whole body needs to be on the racket side of that player before they swing. Uh, otherwise, it's an out-of-position swing. It also is most likely in that situation going to be, because you're crossing that horse, you're going to be in front of or behind that horse. Um, so in those situations, there's a lot of times where you're not far enough away also. Not every time, but a lot of times. Next one I have crossed out. I might have moved this rule around. Let's read it anyway. A player may not swing at an opponent unless the opponent is in the act of gaining possession or has possession of the ball. Yep. So I think this has already been corrected because anything I'm reading in this book that has notes, uh, there have been multiple books that came out since then that hopefully those got transitioned into, and it's just a re repeat of the previous one, so we skip over. Next one, a player may not reach across or under an opponent's horse's center line in order to dislodge the ball from the opponent's racket or prevent the opponent from gaining possession of the ball by hitting the opponent's racket or person. So you can't reach, even though you can't reach across the player's horse, you also can't reach underneath the player's horse uh, to hit their racket. So typically if someone has the ball already, this isn't a problem because you're not allowed to reach across that player's horse anyway. Where this might be is if uh, two players are side by side waiting for the ball to come into the area, a lot of times the three is going to be the one that's in between the number one and the goal. The three is going to make sure that when that one catches the ball, that they are ready to mark them up and do their end zone duties. But when the ball is up in the air, that person doesn't have possession yet. So you actually can reach across their horse to catch a ball, but you're not allowed to hit their racket. I'll, I'll read it again. A player may not reach across or under an opponent's horse's center line in order to dislodge the ball from an opponent's racket or prevent the opponent from gaining possession of the ball by hitting the opponent's racket. All of this stuff says you're not allowed to hit their racket. It doesn't say you're not allowed to keep them from getting possession by catching it. It says you're not allowed to keep them from getting possession by hitting their racket. So you can't hit someone's racket from the wrong side of the horse. Once a player has possession of the ball, an opponent may not reach across the ball carrier's horse with their racket or person. The way I describe this to new people is there is an invisible wall that is built on the ball carrier's center line of their horse. That ball carrier is not allowed to move the ball across that invisible wall. And the defending player may not reach their racket across that center line. So even if they don't end up swinging at the racket, say there's a, a shot at goal, I can't reach across the player with possession of the ball, I can't reach across their horse and try and block the ball or do any of that. I have to be well in front of or behind. And of course, like the previous rule said, I can't hit their racket from that side also. There's a little bit of controversy and, controversy and confusion when someone's shooting a goal. Uh, if you're reaching in front of the horse, then you're not reaching across the horse. So, um, and you are allowed to, at least at a certain distance, reach in front of that other player's horse and catch a, the ball as it's being released. Where it happens is I go to try and catch that ball or deflect it whenever they're shooting a goal, and I make contact with their racket. 
Very few times is that actually swinging at the racket, me actually trying to hit the racket. Almost every time it's me trying to put my racket in front of the ball that's being released. But because I'm doing that, and I'm doing it at close distance, the, the follow-through of the throw will often make contact with my racket. In that situation, I'm not swinging at their racket. I'm attempting to uh, catch this ball that is free-floating in the air, and the other player hit my racket. So you'll see it umpired different ways and say, no, you reached across and you hit their racket. But the definition of hitting their racket, does that mean the rackets make contact or does it mean I'm swinging at the racket, I think is important. Um, I think the way that I would call it is that if I thought they were swinging at their racket or making contact with their racket, I would, I would say that's illegal. But if I think just the follow through of the thrower's racket making contact with theirs um, is, is how the connection was, was made, then I wouldn't say that they're swinging at their racket. Or hitting their racket, I would probably, if anything, say that that person hit their racket. Next one says, no player may swing their racket wildly as to intimidate or injure horse or rider. This is a wild swing, um, and anything to injure a horse or rider is illegal. We could probably take that out and just have the, the previous dangerous riding situations and dangerous use of rackets uh, just apply here. So that one's probably not necessary. Any swing that, in the opinion of the umpire, constitutes a wild or vicious swing or makes contact with the player's head, body, or horse will be penalized. So if you think, and this is a free goal situation, penalty four and above, if you think that the swing is particularly, in your opinion, wild or vicious, or if they hit someone in the head, or if they hit someone's horse, that would be a free goal. Before we had this change, this is one of the rules that we changed, there wasn't anything that specifically said a player's head or a player's body or horse. It just said this wild or vicious. Actually, I think it said vicious or malicious swing would be a free goal, and we would just deem that any time there was contact with the helmet or a player's head that that was wild or vicious. Um I think it's good that we put in this free goal if it hits a player's head because uh, there's a lot of times where pretty innocent swings can end up hitting someone in the head. It's not necessarily wild or vicious, but it should still be a free goal the way that we play the game. That's, that's how we call it. The swing of a racket in more than one consecutive circle while trying to dislodge the ball from an opponent constitutes dangerous play. You can't sit there and turn your racket into a helicopter and just try and swat, 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 swat. Each swing needs to be a swing and not multiple consecutive rotations, circles. Um, the extreme of the opposite of this rule, they, they put in Australia at one point. I'm glad we didn't try it over here. Uh, they did it in... Uh, they do it still in Pony Club, I think, or at least they have up until recently. They had a quarter swing rule. They didn't say anything about multiple circles. They said you're not allowed to go more than a quarter of a circle on your swings. So on a backward swing, you're allowed to start with your racket facing down and move your racket until it's 
horizontal with the ground, and that's it. You can only do these little jabs, no big sluggers coming in there. And that's not how we play the game. Australia immediately pulled it out of, of their rules. Pony Club probably still has it. Uh, but for us, we never we never tried that, and I'm glad because that would make for kind of a, a sissy game. Okay, moving on. 17, assistance to players. No dismounted player shall interfere with the ball or game in any way. If you're off of your horse and you interfere with anybody, you get close to play or you interfere with the ball in any way, because you're off your horse, that's dangerous, and you should be penalized. The other team should get the ball. No player who is dismounted away from the ball may be obstructed from remounting or moving away from play. So if someone falls off their horse and they're there's an obstruction. Another player comes in and tries to keep them from being able to get back on their horse. I've never seen this, and I don't think it would happen. But the no player is allowed to go to an unmounted player and try and keep them from getting on their horse. That must have happened at one point for that rule to be in here, but that's a pretty terrible person to have to, to, to be doing that. Anyways, <clears throat> last one. A player will be penalized... If they receive outside assistance, which is assistance from anyone other than section teammates, while on the field. <clears throat> so, this all this is during gameplay. If time is off, nothing matters. But during gameplay, if, say, you drop your racket, there is no one aside from your two teammates on your section that's allowed to help you on the field. Here it doesn't say anything about off the field. So... If you see that there's a player that's dropped their racket, you pick it up for them or you have a spare racket for them, you need to make sure that you, as the person that's helping them, is off the field whenever you hand them that racket back or help them in any other way. Um, even if they're away from players, it's still not allowed for you to get that outside assistance while on the field. The right thing to do is run off the sideline, grab that second racket, and run back onto play, right? run back onto the field. And if anybody were to help you, you are the one that gets penalized. So as a player, don't accept help from anybody that's trying to help you in an illegal way like that. 18, time off. If a horse falls or a player or horse is injured, the umpire shall stop the game immediately. In the absence of a penalty, the umpire shall restart the game in a way that does not take advantage away from either team. I'll read that again. If a player fall, or if a horse falls, this is in the time off section. If a horse falls, it's time off, no matter what. If a player or horse is injured, it's also time off. If you see a horse is lame, you see blood, you see um, a horse that goes down, or you see a player that's hurt, all of those things you have to call time off for. And in the absence of a penalty or another infraction. So if, if there's a collision, uh, some sort of crossing or something that caused a horse to be injured, then that penalty will carry over and, and someone will get the ball. But if you just notice that a horse is lame or um, a horse slips and falls down or you see that there's blood on a horse or whatever it is that you call time off for, if there wasn't a penalty, uh, you would just start the ball back with, if a player had the ball, you'd give them back the ball in a way that's uh, the most neutral that you can. Give it back to them where they had it. 
balls on the ground, throw it in from the closest sideline, that kind of thing. If a player becomes dismounted, the game is stopped only if a dangerous situation is created. So this happens when somebody falls off. If a player falls off, play goes on. If the player's injured, or if that player's in in amongst the other players and it causes a dangerous situation in any way, then you do need to call time off. But just because someone fell off, assuming that there's no injury associated with it, that you wouldn't call time off. I don't know if this really is a good thing. There's been a couple times, even in, say, a World Cup, that a, hor- a player falls off. They're not injured. It's They reach too far down for the ball, and they slide off, land right on their feet. There's nothing wrong with this player. But that horse runs half a mile away to the paddock or trailer or wherever it wants to be, and that player's pretty much out of the game for a long time until that horse is retrieved and they can get back on. Maybe that's okay. Maybe that's the intent. Um, currently, that's how we, we call it, unless there's that injury like we talked about or the horse actually fell. You wouldn't call time off, but there are situations where they're playing two on three for a long time by the time that other player gets back in. All right. Any incident that results in a need for medical care will be reported to the chief umpire of the APA for further investigation. So anytime someone gets hurt or a horse gets hurt, that's something we try and record, and we forward that back up to with the tournament reports to the chief umpire and some people in the administration of the APA. That record will hope, hopefully be useful if they're trying to research if there's a certain situation or a trend that people are getting hurt. Maybe it's not a player that's the problem, but people are getting hurt in uh, crossing or lineups or w- whatever it is. If we see that trend and we're able to keep up with it, then we can make adjustments to the game in the future. The last one on time off, a player will be penalized if time is called off due to a dangerous situation relating to safety equipment. So safety equipment has to be on, and here it says any time that time is called off because of safety equipment, say someone's helmet falls off or leg wrap comes off or their breastplate breaks, anything like that, um they will be penalized. All right, just a couple left. Last page, deadlock is this next one. And I like this one. It's kind of fun. Doesn't happen very often, but it's a fun one to to be able to call. It says, in the event of a deadlock, which is two opposing players unable to make progress on the ball, lasting more than 10 seconds, the umpire shall stop the game and throw the ball in from the nearest boundary line. This whole deadlock situation is... When, there's, when you're designing the game, you have rules for safety and rules for fairness, but then you have these other rules that just kind of design the game and make it work. And if this happens, then this happens, and you don't ever have any time where the game breaks down. This fixes one of those breakdowns. If there's a, a situation, say, in the end zone or in midfield where the ball gets lodged in a mud hole and it just is not able to be picked up by players in the field, or if... The low-level players in the area, neither one of them can pick up the ball. Um, Then the game would just continue to go on. The clock would go down, and the game would be broken. So here, if that happens and two players 
The two opposing players are unable to make progress on the ball, however you want to decide that progress means. After 10 seconds has elapsed, you call time off, or you blow the whistle, you grab the ball, and you throw it in a neutral lineup, closest boundary line. This happens, uh, it's fun when it happens in the area at high level. Uh, number three or whichever player might drop their racket on the ground. But they only have one other person that's allowed in that area to pick up the ball. So if that player is allowed to hold the other player off the ball for 10 seconds, then the ball will be thrown in. And in the quick time that the umpire is retrieving the ball and being ready to throw the ball in, they can either grab a racket from one of their teammates or pick up the racket from the ground. Uh, what you'll see is these most of these high-level players know this rule. And... They have an extra hand because they've dropped their racket. And you'll see as they're holding the other player off of the ball, them put their hand up and start counting with their fingers like they're playing hide-and-seek. And when they get up to 10, they're just making sure the umpire realizes what's going on and is going to allow them to have that chance to get their racket and throw the ball back in. Next, in the event that the number one is alone in the goal-scoring area with the ball... That player must attempt a shot at goal within 15 seconds. This is another one of those broken situations. Uh, my team, say, is ahead by one goal, and I know that as long as I can just stall the clock and you know put the game on pause, then we will win the game. So if I get the ball in the area, I'll just stand there with the ball. I won't shoot a goal because I know that after four more minutes, the the clock will run out. We will have won the game by one one goal. This is in the situation where the number three is being, or either one of them is being held out and isn't able to be in the area to do anything about it. So to keep that from happening, which is pretty unsportsmanlike behavior and it really breaks the game, if you have the ball in the area by yourself, you have to attempt a shot at goal within 15 seconds or we have a deadlock and the ball would be given to the other team. Uh, pretty similar to that one. The last one is in the event that the number three is alone in the goal scoring area, that player must move the ball across the 30 yard line within 15 seconds. So same scenario. The number one is not present for one reason or another. The three is in the area. They can't just stand there by themselves. There's no way for the other team to do anything about it. Um, after 15 seconds has elapsed, if they haven't moved the ball back across the 30 yard line into midfield, then you would penalize them for deadlock and you'd be able to give the ball to the other team. All right, 20, conduct prejudicial to the game. This one has a free goal and minimum penalty on these. The following behaviors will be recognized as conduct disruptive to the safety or spirit of the game and will be penalized. Using abusive, insulting, threatening, or obscene language towards or in relation to an umpire, official, or another player. So if you have someone out there cussing or back-talking an umpire in a threatening or obscene way, insulting way, abusive way, all of those things you can say, tweet, free goal. Next one, disputing a decision of an umpire, undermining the authority of the umpire, or purposefully delaying the game. So if you talk back to an umpire in a way that demeans their authority and undermines that authority, you'll be penalized. This purposefully delaying of the game situation might happen, say, if uh, 
say there's a 10 yard throw and the umpire says play and you say, what's, what's the call or uh, where's the point? Or if you can tell that time is a factor of the game and it's important to each team and you can see that one player is doing something that's purposefully delaying the game, then that is not allowed. Next one, striking another person or physically physical abuse of any official or player. So I would think that throwing them off the field would be the first uh, the first penalty here. But here it's at least a free goal. You can move it right up to whatever you want after that. But you're not allowed to hit somebody. You're not allowed to physically abuse any other player or the official. Next, dangerous riding to cause injury or horse to horse and or player, which is either reckless or intentional. This is conduct prejudicial to the game if you're intentionally or even on accident. Um, this, this one can be taken out. Dangerous riding is already covered in previous rule, and it's the same penalty. So I think this one's probably just kind of a duplicate. Next one, failing to leave the playing field when directed to do so by the umpire. Uh, man, if I tell somebody they're kicked off for two minutes and they leave the field, or they don't leave the field, I don't think I'm going to give that team a free goal. I might give them a free goal and kick them off for the whole game. Or, I don't know, you can, that's a pretty stubborn player, and that player probably doesn't need to be in in the game at all. If you've kicked them off the field and they don't leave the field, uh, that's probably something even afterwards the APA should have some uh, some disciplinary action for. Last one, any act which, in judgment of the umpire, is disruptive to the safety or fairness of the game. That's just an open-ended, you're trying to cheat or trying to cause dangerous situation and you'll be penalized. The very, very, very last rule in this whole rules of play, which is a great one to end on, it says, questions not provided for. Should any incident or question not provided for in these rules arise, the umpire or umpires shall be the final judge and their decision shall be final. The umpire and umpires is referring to the three the two mounted and the sideline umpire, the the referee, there is the occasion that something weird is going to happen. There is a dog that enters the field or a, uh, I don't know, whatever it is that happens that isn't in the rule book, you have the authority amongst the three of you to figure out what to do about it. You should always try and put fairness and kind of like the purpose of the game uh, into your decision-making process in that. But just know that if there's something in the rules that isn't covered, you still have the authority of the umpire to try and sort it out on your own and figure out what to do. And whatever you decide is the right thing to do because it says right here, what you say is right. The only thing I can say about this is there's times where the Um, say the chief umpire of the APA, the the highest ranking umpire in the organization is either present or on the field. While that game is going on, that person cannot be a deciding factor in how to handle these things. Uh, They can talk about it afterwards, but the two people on the field and this expert on the sidelines with a rule book in their pocket, the referee, 
are the ones that are going to determine how to handle that situation. If they'd like to ask outside assistance, that's fine. But the authority of a zone umpire or a chief umpire while the tournament's going on is, is not effective. They can be consulted with, and that's as far as, as their authority goes. And on Monday afterwards, when the tournament report comes in, if the people that made that decision made a wrong decision, then they can either have a teaching moment or change the rule to be more clear if they want afterwards. But during the game, those three people can decide how to handle each situation. Woohoo! All right, we are done. Congratulations, we've completed the rule book. There are two other sections in this standards of playbook, the APA membership and the standards of tournament play sections that they describe um, kind of how a tournament should be run and how to interact with the APA as a member, paying dues, and if you're an international player, if you're allowed to play, those kind of things. Um, but the the parts that I'm interested in are the stuff that actually happens on the field, and we covered it all. So thanks again for hanging in there with me. Feel free to let me know if there's anything that I wasn't clear about or if there's something that you disagreed with what I said. Uh, I like talking about that kind of stuff, and feel free to give me a call. Otherwise, I'll see you on the field. Thanks for listening to this episode. Daniel Johnson is a true expert at the rules, and I appreciate so much the time he took to go through them one by one, line by line. Whether you just want to be a better umpire or a better player, understanding the rules is vital. Cheers to you, Daniel. Here on Chucka Talk, we appreciate your feedback. Have you enjoyed the show? Do you have questions or comments? Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. For a chance to be featured on the show, leave a voicemail by finding the Send Voicemail Sidebar button on PoloCrossMadeSimple.com. For more PoloCross coaching, go to PoloCrossMadeSimple.com. You'll find ebooks on how to become a great player and even on how to become a great coach. Find me on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a good one.